In the past year, we've heard the terms critical race theory or CRT a lot in the news and in conversation nationally in states from Florida to Texas to Tennessee and beyond legislators have pushed to regulate how race, racism and American history are talked about and taught about in classrooms here in North Carolina, public leaders, school boards and community members have pushed back at what constitutes appropriate conversations about the influence of race on society. There's been a lot of fear and fragility that has led to book bans and in some cases, anti-black or anti-BIPOC initiatives and even violence. There has also been plenty of resistance and willingness to confront misinformation about CRT. As we looked ahead to the start of a new school year, our summer interns wanted to better understand critical race theory, as well as Spotlight We Are, an organization unapologetically informed by the CRT framework and committed to building anti-racist practice in students, teachers, and parents. We sat down for a conversation with Dr. Vonda Taylor Bullock, co-founder of We Are, for today's podcast. This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. everybody welcome back to the latest episode of the on the margins podcast run by creed my name is ethan rodier and i'm one of the summer interns here at creed this summer and i am joined by my co-host camille bostic if you want to introduce yourself quickly camille hi y'all camille the director of programming at creed super excited for this conversation today with dr Rhonda taylor bullock dr bullock we're Really thankful to have you on board today to talk about a variety of subjects. So if you just want to introduce yourself quickly, and then we will get into the subject matter at hand. All right. Thank you, Ethan and Camille. It's a pleasure to be here with you all um, to talk a little bit more about who I am and the work that I do. Uh, my name is Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock. I am the co-founder and lead curator or executive director um, at We Are. We Are stands for Working to extend anti-racist education. And at We Are, we provide anti-racism training for children, families, and educators. And um, part of the lens or perspective that I bring into uh, running the organization and the vision of the work um, is uh, my the lens or the framework of critical race theory, which is what I studied in my doctoral program. And so um, our work that we do in We Are is rooted in uh, CRT and in that framework. Okay, awesome. And once again, thanks for being here, Dr. Bullock. Just as you finished your introduction about critical race theory, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about critical race theory. I'd say definitely at this point in the United States, it's a widely known subject, but not much is known about it. You could ask most people have heard about it, but people who ask you to describe what it is and what its origins are might not be able to do that so well. So if you want to give us a little bit of background about critical race theory, basically how it came to form and what exactly it's all about, that would be great. 
Yeah, um, so a lot of misconceptions out about critical race theory, but it is important for people to know that um, CRT stems out of critical legal studies, which was a part of a you know, framework in theory in law schools. Um, but scholars such as Kimber Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the phrase critical race theory, she and other academics were looking to better explain the role that race is playing in uh, disproportionate outcomes and, and the role that race plays in law and, and in policy. And so um, they pretty much use this framework and other scholars today use this framework to better understand the role that race and racism more specifically, um, how it's been embedded in laws and policies and how it's systemic. So it's more, uh, it's, a, it's socially constructed, it's not biological and um, that it has had, uh, it contributes to systemic racism and helping us to better understand the systems and policies um, where race and racism show up and it really moves us away from like individual meanness, um, biases and bigotry to zoom out to what are the structural implications for um, racism being embedded in, in, in our laws and policies. Okay, awesome. Thank you for that explanation. Definitely very insightful. At the beginning of your answer, you mentioned that there's a lot of misconceptions about critical race theory certainly currently circulating within the scope of conversation. Um, what are some of the more common misconceptions that we see surrounding CRT? And basically, what would you say that those misconceptions are rooted in? Um, I think some of the more common misconceptions that is that it's about white people's feelings and making white people feel shame. And that is the farthest um, from the truth. It's, it's not concerned about um, making white people feel bad. Um, there's no uh, benefits to um, shame, shaming, and um, that it doesn't help us to better understand the society that we're living operating in. And I think that's, uh, and that is, um, that is evil and that is bad. Like th these are the common misconceptions in the way that some of the rhetoric around, um, around the topic uh, is used. And so I think it's important that people understand that um, critical race theory helps us to walk in truth. It helps us to embrace a holistic truth, all of our history. Um, and it helps all of us to better understand um, history, laws, and policies. Um, it helps us to better understand how we get to the, the inequities that we can see by race in our current society. These inequities are not naturally occurring. And what critical race theory does is to help point those out. It helps us to zoom out and to put uh, these policies into context so that you can see over the years, um, policies such as redlining or segregation or slavery, these are laws, right, that are part of our country's history. They have a, a longitudinal impact on the outcomes of not only uh, Black people and Brown people and people of color, but also white people as well. So, um, you know, that's what critical race theory does. It helps us to, to zoom out from the individual and look at how these uh, laws and policies and these systems are creating these inequities along racial lines. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to emphasize the point that critical race theory obviously is not meant as slander of the white person or the white individual. You know, it's all about teaching a greater history. And I'm really glad that you dived into that within your answer and talking about obviously those historically racist policies that the United States have implemented throughout its existence. Talking a little more about critical 
race theory, our work in Creed is very centered in North Carolina, and I know that you are North Carolina based as well. So I was hoping that you could give us some insight into how critical race theory has been really received throughout the state of North Carolina. Um, and basically, has it been more positively receptive, more negatively? Does it really depend on the area? So any insight you have on that would be great. Yeah, it really depends on who you're talking to <laughs> and what their um, what their goals and objectives are. To be honest, um, in some spaces it is it's well received. And well, for one, like um, you know, the current political rhetoric around CRT has put it in mainstream media in ways um, that it hadn't been mainstream before. So unfortunately, a lot of people's introductions uh, or introduction to critical race theory is rooted in lies. And, and, and anti-truth telling, and which is really which is really unfortunate. And so I will say that for people who believe in uh, democracy, for people who believe in public schools and funding public schools and social good, for people who believe in um, equity and anti-racism work, they have received this new knowledge and this new understanding of critical race theory well. They wanna know more about it. They're reading more books and more educators are becoming attuned to it. And um, you know, and some educators over time have learned about critical race theory and the value that it brings to um, their instruction that they've been able to incorporate tenets or ideas um, about it into um, their classrooms, which is something that we would want. Like if, if our school systems were really rooted in a critical race theory framework, we would start to see some of these opportunity gaps and some of these disproportionalities along racial and gender lines. We would start to see them shrink if it was truly the framework with which um, our school systems were run. And so I think that for those of us, again, who value that, it's been well-received. On the other hand, though, the people with the... Um, loudest mouths or the greatest access right to, to public forms of communication oftentimes which are um white supremacists they you know painted this picture that um is harmful it's evil we got to root it out fire the teachers who are teaching it silence the voices of any academic or um community activists who, who's who's rooted in a critical race theory framework and we at we are can speak for that um from firsthand account we were targeted uh, by some high-ranking politicians in our state, some white male uh, politicians, some white supremacists as well, um, because we are rooted in a critical race theory framework. We're out here doing work, um, trying to fund educators and some of the work and efforts that they're leading, and they took issue with it. And when you have a high-ranking white male politician in your state um, naming, calling out your organization and the work that you're doing and associating you with critical race theory, which they've you know, demonized, um, it stirred up a, a, a angry racist base against us. And so we had to put um, safety precautions in place for our staff, for our families and our children. But we were not uh, deterred. We're going to continue to be a critical uh, organization rooted in a critical race theory framework. We're going to continue to to uh, talk about truth telling. We're going to continue to um, expose white supremacy in our school systems and in the, the other policies and laws that are uh, part of our, our country and our state and in our local school systems. And we're going to keep doing the work and um, organizing around it and, and, and aligning our power with the other people who have our shared values, even though that voice um, of, of pushback and resistance is large and powerful. Coming up, how young is too young to talk about the impact of race 
and systemic racism in our schools and our society. But first, let's take a break. Yeah. It's that time. Yo. Now I know y'all ain't gonna let these people tell y'all what y'all can and cannot teach in the classroom. I, I know y'all not going for that, so I'm gonna address it. Want to join the conversation? Creed is partnering with the Charlotte Post on September 22nd from 6.30 to 8 p.m. to further explore critical race theory and the pushback. Stay connected with us and The Post on social media for more updates on this virtual program. That's at Creed underscore NC or at The Shar Post. We hope to see you there. By the way, you hear that track? They ban books that speak from our perspective, overreached by our electors who try to legislate away the pieces Shar neglected. We got a mixtape. Creed has joined forces with some educators of color from across the country to get some tracks for y'all. The Teaching in Color mixtape is good music. Find it through our Bandcamp or our IG and let us know what you think. Welcome back. Let's rejoin the conversation between summer intern Ethan Rodier and Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock of We Are as they continue their discussion of CRT and what it means for students to talk about race and racism. So a little earlier you talked about um, implementing in school. So I wanted to ask you, um, is there a common way to implement CRT into a school system? So basically by that, um, is there like a certain grade that you start teaching the concepts of CRT in like certain ages and is it something that more should be focused on having black and brown teachers talk about or can properly white teachers educate their other students about that? So basically um, how that impl implementation process would look like in a school system. Yeah, I think at any time you're working with children, any regardless of the age, teaching them the truth is always timely. It's always age appropriate. Right. Um, and I think you do have to uh, be thoughtful, though, about um, how much what what we're exposing children to um, in an age appropriate way. But telling the truth, you know, is something that is, is always relevant, always needed. And that's part of what, you know, critical race theory um, does. And, you know, children better understanding um, our history the roles of uh, women, indigenous people, black women, people of color, immigrants, um, people from the LGBTQ community, having all of this information and learning helps us to build empathy, right? It helps us to um, better understand laws and policies. And it also helps us to better understand how do we disrupt um, inequities. And children as young as two and three understand fairness versus unfairness. Right. And helping them to uh, build uh, relationships across racial, gender, um, socioeconomic status lines like that's always appropriate. Right. Um, and I think that. Regardless of your racial, ethnic background, you should be able to lead with this type of framework. Right. And um, and be able to meet the needs of the students that that you're teaching. It's. Um, it's, it's not about making white students feel shamed or bad. 
um, from what they're learning. Um, it's just not about white people <laughs> in the sense that it's not about you at the individual level. That is to say, it is about looking at structures. It is about helping children to understand um, at the, at the pre-K level, where does your food come from? And who are the people who have access to food? And why do some people have food in their communities and some people do not? Like those are things that, you know, young children uh, can, can understand. And I think that what's even more important here, the bigger picture is that this critical race theory moment is not happening in isolation. Right. These attacks on our education system, on voting rights, um, on the rights of uh, immigrants, on the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. If we zoom out, all of this stuff is happening at the same time. And what we're really experiencing right now is a rise in white supremacy. It's a rise in a fascist movement. And, and this critical race theory is just a, a little piece of this larger puzzle. And if we don't zoom out and put this current anti-truth telling movement in a larger context, we're, we're missing a whole white supremacy movement, right? And uh, all of these things are very much interconnected and we need to be concerned and we need to be having more conversations, doing more organizing to push back um, because this, the direction that we're headed is not healthy. It is not safe for any of us, but particularly those of us who identify as people of color or those of us who, who, are, have, who have been marginalized um, by laws and policies in our society. Yeah, uh, and Dr. Bullock, all of your um, information has been incredibly insightful so far. We can clearly see your passion for the subject, which is truly amazing to see. So I wanted to on that note, pass it off to my co-host Camille, who is going to ask you some questions basically about how you came to really start studying CRT and how your passion really built up for it. So Camille, off to you. Thank you, Dr. Bullock. First of all, I've been snapping and nodding my head. I just appreciate your, your breakdown of, of what you've been saying. Can you take a moment just to, you know, interlude us, like how did you, or how would you describe like your journey of becoming a critical race scholar? And um, even talk to us even about your commitment to education equity. And then I wanna get more into these conversations that you were bringing up um, about what we need to do at this moment to battle anti-truth telling. Yeah, so I was, I was previously a high school English teacher at Hillside High School in Durham, which is a, one of the few remaining um, historically black schools in our state. And so um, my husband had was, a, was an educator as well, uh, Dr. Daniel Coven Bullock, and he left to get his PhD. And um, he would come home talking about critical race theory. And um, I, every time he would bring up something, I'm like, this is me. These are things, this is, so there's a theory that explains my whole existence when I've been otherized and ostracized and had all these labels projected on me because I see race and I see whiteness and I see white supremacy, right? So um, I decided to go get a, a PhD in um, education policy. And um, I was really trying to study the early literacy experiences of black and brown boys because I was receiving so many at the high school level who were coming in and not reading on grade level. And I recognized that um, in the research, it was not saying racism was a part of the problem. And I know racism is a part of the problem. So what I decided to do was to um, lean into the critical race theory framework 
But at that time, I, I started thinking about like, we're, we're in the, um, George Zimmerman had been acquitted of murdering uh, Trayvon Martin. Um, a police officer had murdered Mike Brown. And so I've just, a lot of thoughts were going through my head about race and what's happening. And so I, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to better understand whiteness and how do white children become white, right? And so um, out of critical race theory, I actually zoom into critical whiteness studies. And so I'm paying attention to one, um, white children's racial identity construction, but also within that I'm learning more about whiteness in general. And so the, uh, the critical race theory framework helps me to um, situate that type of learning and studying and to always pay attention to not only like how laws and policies help one to become white, right? And so, um, and, and then some of that work even is embedded in, in young children and how they identify in, in the, in the uh, characteristics and identities that they own and portray and, and embody. And so it was, the, it was in the midst of all of these things, hope happening at the larger level in our country. It was just the very beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it was a passion for better understanding race in our country. Um, race became real to me at five when I was told by a white classmate in kindergarten that I could not come to her house for her birthday party because her dad said black people were not allowed in her home. So I've been paying attention to race and racism from a very early age, then becoming an educator um, in an historically black space, a, a, an identity affirming space, right? Um, and then still seeing these inequities and wanting to do more to better understand, to be disruptive um, in, in, you know, the, the inequities. And I think it was a combination of all of these things. Also being a mother at the time when I went into my PhD program, I had a three-year-old and a three-month-old. And it was just like, I, critical race theory was where I found myself. It was where I, I, where I, as a human being, made sense. Where you can no longer otherize me because this is a whole theory here that is like it was made for me and how I show up in the world and how I see the world and how I understand it. And so it just felt, I call it my academic home. I took my shoes off and put my feet up because <laughs> this is this is where I am. And I, I felt affirmed and seen um, in my critical race theory studies and classes and with my professors. I love how you describe that, like you know, it's home, you put your feet up. But the other thing that really caught me in what you just shared is this constant need to name how systemic racism occurs, right? And what, where we see it. And a lot of times race and racism, systemic racism, like we don't talk about it uh, at any level, not at the adult level, not at the young people level, not at the school level, but we're seeing all of these manifestations of it. As you've been trying to educate students, parents, teachers even, and those beyond policymakers about critical race theory and, it's, and the way race and racism shows up. Like what difficulties do you have in, in raising the conversation and then one kind of getting to the point where people are like, yeah, maybe I see what you're saying. Like, do you win people over is what I wonder? Or is it always just a constant struggle? Yeah, it's, it's mostly um, people who are on the same page. Now, I will say, by and large, uh, let me zoom out for a second. So, well, we provide anti-racism summer camps for kids in rising first through fifth grade professional development for educators and workshops for parents and families. In a lot of spaces where we are invited to come, 
And so there are people in attendance who are, are on their journey or just starting the journey, but by and large want to be on the journey. Um, then there's sometimes places where we're invited and your staff is made to come, <laughs> right? And so we might run into more resistance there. But um, I will say that um, and having conversations with children, children have a curiosity. Um, their biases aren't as high and as wide as adults. So more than anything, they're appalled at racism. They're asking questions like, this is happening right now because they, they thought it was back in the day. Martin, according to the children, bless their hearts, Martin Luther King Jr. freed the slaves and we no longer have um, uh, racism, right? And, but, and so now they're hearing these things, they're hearing about Black Lives Matter movement and they have a curiosity. They're asking questions like, how can this happen? We're, you know, who's doing these things? How do we stop? You know, that's where the children are. With adults though, some of them are um, surprised, like some of the information that we share, especially, especially about how racism is rooted in laws and policies. They are appalled that they never knew some of this information. They are shocked. Some of them are sad. Um, that they were not taught these things in schools. They wish they had learned earlier and sooner. Um, they want to know what they can do about it, though. We try to, like, you've been in one workshop for two hours, like, <laughs> slow, slow down, you know. And then some people are resistant, depending on how they show up. Um, even some people who are on the journey are still resistant, right? Um, because you're challenging their whole, particularly white people, I'm going to name that, we're going to be specific here, right? You're challenging their whole identity. You're challenging how they've, un, how they've lived 30 years in the world with this one particular understanding of what it means to be white or to not even think about what it means to be white. It's very hard to be in a we are workshop and not think about how you identify as a white person, <laughs> Right. You don't get to you will not leave that space not knowing that you are white. <laughs> um, and so um, it's it's incredulity. Like, I can't believe this or this can't be true. Like, no, this is the data. This this was the policy. This this not these are not my dates. <laughs> these are U.S. history dates. Like, go go look it up beyond that. And so, you know, we get people on a range. Um, uh, we get some people who will, within the workshop, say that they don't see race, they don't see color, they treat everybody equally. And I'm like, just sit with that statement and let's talk about whether or not that's actually even a true statement. You don't treat everybody equally. And if you do, that's actually kind of problematic because we're very different, right? And, and especially in education, you can make that a lot more visible because we have things called IEPs or individual education plans where they say, you legally can't treat all of these children the same because they have different needs um, and abilities or disabilities and you need to meet their specific needs, right? So at least in education, we can help them to see how you should not be treating everyone the exact same, right? Um, but those are some of the things that we run into in some of our workshops. Sounds like heavy work. Hard work, really. And I, I appreciate that you all are doing it. I know uh, Ethan has a few questions about like we are and where y'all stand. But if I could just go back quickly to the point you made earlier that given the times that we're in, where there seems to be a lot of backlash and pushback that's affecting all kinds of marginalized communities, um, if you could, not say wave your wand, but you know, kind of like give the, the strategy for moving forward and, and trying to tackle some of this, is, is there something that you think uh, could be a starting point to, to help us combat all the things that seem to be coming at us constantly? 
you know, the greatest inhibitor to racial progress um, is white liberals. And those are not my words. This is <laughs> Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s words, right? To, for, so, for someone whose quotes are overused, they rarely say that one. But, and, and to be honest, in a lot of spaces, I believe in the power of black and brown leadership um, and in black and brown voices, whether it's in the educational system, whether it's in classrooms or on school boards, um, being presidents of, and holding different positions. Um, I believe that uplifting black and brown leadership in, in positions of power and um, leadership that of course you that you want rooted in an anti-racism framework, right? Because um, you it's not just find any black person or any brown person or any black woman or any queer woman. It has to be someone who has the framework. Um, but having white people who are holding positions of power to get out of the way. And because um, we have the answers in our communities, but there's so many barriers and gatekeeping preventing us from seeing a lot of the success uh, um, that we could see if we did not have people who present as an ally um, holding up space and being gatekeepers. That's the whole word, Dr. Bullet. <laughs> I'm gonna let the people sit with it. Ethan, you want to follow up with the next set of questions? Absolutely. And Dr. Bullock, all of this, once again, has been really valuable information. Almost makes me wish that I had something similar to We Are for myself when I was growing up to really help myself identify. And I was certainly grateful to grow up in a public school system that really taught me well and opened my eyes up. But even then, it still wasn't enough in programs like We Are, are truly going to be necessary in the future to have better and more educational conversations about race and about and through the lens of things like critical race theory. So as you mentioned earlier, you are a co-founder and current director of We Are. So I just wanted to ask you basically what led you to create the organization um, and yeah, just what inspired its upbringing to where it currently stands today. Yeah, I know I, I previously shared, you know, what was happening around the time um, I had started building We Are and organizing with other um, local activists to bring We Are to fruition. Um, but I was back in my, at UNC, so I did my undergrad at UNC, master's at UNC, and I was back there for my PhD program in the policy leadership and school improvement uh, doctoral program in the School of Ed. And um, so we have these larger things happening on a social level, right, in our country, this larger political context. It's the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, all of police brutality is, is just doing that a lot. And it's, um, and it's just being back on campus and leaving this historically Black space and this identity affirming space and being re-exposed um, and, and pushed into a historically white space on UNC's campus. And I was experiencing racism on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it was a professor or a classmate or something was happening every day. And I, I was recognizing this is happening to me and not my neighbors. This is not my husband's story. This is my story. And so as a person of faith, uh, you know, I was like, God, what are you trying to tell me? 
And um, it felt like God was telling me, you need to be doing anti-racism work on a much more systematic level. So I started thinking about what would that look like? Um, and in the first part of we are, uh, I was brainstorming like ideas of, of things to do, but what really came to me was like, um, for people like uh, George Zimmerman, the George Zimmermans of the world, I started thinking like, it's too late to be doing anti-racism work with these adults. Like they're, like I said earlier, their biases are high and wide, right? What, do, what does it mean to look at how does one become white, which made me think about children. And that made me think about um, summer camps, doing camps with children and using literacy to help them have conversations about race, identity, skin color, activism, um, to help children develop healthy racial identities. Right, so this idea of using books because books have been used historically to uh, erase black and brown people, to erase indigenous people, right? To erase women in our contributions. And so what would it look like to use books to affirm uh, more, to affirm black and brown identities, to, uh, to affirm our humanity, right? And so I started with this idea of, um, well, first I had to do a lot of organizing work to get people um, to, to share the idea of what I wanted to do with We Are, we came together. But before I reached out to them, like I'd had some ideas already planned out. Like, I think we need to work with children. Well, how would our society be different had we, cause I didn't get it. And you all, and it sounds like earlier, you know, you with none of us, we didn't have this intentional focus on building healthy racial identities, on building relationships with people from whom we are different, on building empathy around differences, right? And so that the camps came to me first. And then I was like, well, if you're working with children, you got to work with their parents, right? Because they're having this new knowledge. They need somebody to talk to about it or to ask these questions that they have. And uh, so you got to inform the parents. And then it was like, if you're working with, because I was almost done with adults, especially educators. <laughs> but I was like, if you're working with the children, if you're working with the parents, then you also need to bring in the educators. And that's how we got that triangulated approach um, as a part of We Are's mission to work with children, families, and educators to bring about, you know, um, systemic change, to bring about an emphasis on a healthy racial identity uh, development and construction for, for all of us. Yeah, 100%. Um, and going off of that information, I just wanted to ask um, basically what the perspectives and feedback has been like from each um, group of people that are really have a major stake in We Are. So basically perspectives from the students themselves who are in the camps, from the educators and also from the parents who are sending these students to be a part of the organization, what all of them think, basically any feedback that you've gotten positive or extremely negative and anything in between would be great for us to hear. Um, the children, I will say in our camps, is a balance of heavy lightness because it's not fun to learn about race and racism, right? Um, but we do create a learning environment where they're safe, where they're affirmed, where they get to ask questions and not be penalized. And so they, they are really excited about coming to We Are Camp and learning. Um, and so they have questions. And, and that's like, that's their feedback. They have questions and they want to keep learning and we give them books. So they want more books to read and they want to keep going and uh, they come back. So we have a lot of people and families who return to our summer camps. We have uh, this summer, we had 30 families on our wait list for our summer camps um, that we have in, in Durham and in Greensboro now. And with educators by and large, uh, the ones who share our same values, 
by and large, most of them wish they had had this type of learning prior to becoming an educator. So they could have shown up differently and more thoughtfully in their classroom and in their, their pedagogy. Um, and parents are really just thirsty. They want to know they don't want to mess up, although we, you know, we can't, you're not going to walk out of our workshop, workshops and be saved and be a completely different person and then all of a sudden be anti-racist. It's going to be more like you're on a journey. And that's what we're telling. The families want more. Um, they, they're asking for things. They're asking questions that they hadn't asked before. They're appreciative that their kids have experienced being in a caucus by race when they at 30 and 40 years old had never been in a white caucus space, but their children have, or black and brown parents um, are, are thankful that their children, our children, our babies, because my kids have participated too, that our babies are um, in spaces where they feel safe and affirmed and seen in all of the books feature people with um, active melanin in their skin and um, like the black families are just like, thank you. I think it's a part of, it's part of our healing process because uh, many of us, and I can't say all of us because some people went to some uh, black enriched identity affirming spaces as kids, but a lot of us didn't. And so for some families, it's a, it's a continuation of what they had growing up. And for other black families, it's a, a healing. It's, a, it's disrupting the cycle of what you know, they as parents had experienced in schools and, 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 and the erasure from books. Now they're getting to be in spaces where their children get to change uh, that cycle and that trajectory in ways that maybe they weren't able to do. That's really great to hear. And for those of you listening who have never heard of We Are Before, I highly encourage you to go to their website and check it out. It is weare-nc.org if you are interested in either sending your kid there, or if you're an educator and want to take part of it, or just want to know more, please go check out their website and see the truly amazing work that Dr. Bullock and her team are doing. As our time wraps up together, I just wanted to ask you one more question about We Are. Obviously, things have been going pretty well so far, and everything seems to be turning towards a bright future. So I wanted to ask, what are the goals of We Are for the future, and how do you hope to expand the promise of the organization even more? Um, we hope to, well, let me say this before I close out. I do want to say that oftentimes I am the outward facing uh, person or persona for the organization, but we are more than just one person. We are a supportive board. We now have a, a team. We have three additional colleagues who are bright and smart and dope and brilliant and anti-racist. And it's really nice to have that, that team and that support and to know that it's not one single person doing this work. And none of us in any of our spaces or capacities could do this work by ourselves. So it's definitely all of us coming together and co-creating this work together. Um, so I want to shout out our, our team and our board. And I want to say that our hope is to grow and expand. We want to build infrastructure. The demand for our work is very high. It, it, it exceeds our capacity. And so we're hoping to get the funds to build um, a infrastructure, a stronger infrastructure to be able to hire more people. We want to train more people. We want to train more educators and more parents and more community members and create more spaces for, for not only children, but also students and college students and high school students to learn. There is, a, a, a again, a thirst for this knowledge, a desire to show up as an anti-racist in our society, and we, we need the capacity to meet 
um, the needs as best we can. Like we are, we are not uh, working from this illusion that we're about to cure racism or that we have all the answers. No, but we have access to knowledge and some and some positions of power and some privilege where we can do our part. We can create our ripple, right, um, on this journey in uh, in creating a more socially just anti-racist society. Awesome. That is a truly great note to end on. I see great things in the future for we are as an organization and the state of North Carolina continuing to become more united as a front understanding the racial history of the United States and the importance of teaching that through critical race theory in our education system. So I just wanted to thank you again. Once again, we are with Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock, who is the co-founder and director of the We Are organization for joining us today and discussing a little bit about critical race theory, her background, and what she has done with the We Are organization. Thank y'all so much for having me. (laughs) Wow. Talk about bright and smart and dope and brilliant and anti-racist. Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock, y'all. We appreciate her so much for taking the time to share her insights and her experiences. That'll do it for this episode of On the Margins. Thanks so much to Ethan Rodier for allowing me to co-host this one with him. Summer intern Camille Alderman for her help getting this interview all set up. And of course, to you all for listening. We'll catch you next time.